Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Uh, The preacher... Now comes to the end of the matter. It's the end of the whole matter here. Uh, He began um, in the beginning of the book with the supposition, uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, And then undertaking, as he did, uh, the experiment uh, to find fulfillment um, under the sun. That repeated phrase that we've looked at throughout our study. And then he goes on and he tells of his quest attesting that that neither wealth nor pleasure nor the honor of men can bring um, ultimate happiness or contentment. So he's drawn a line of demarcation between a a theocentric and an anthropocentric worldview. Um, One that is anthropocentric being life under the sun with no regard, acknowledgement really, of God as compared to a theocentric uh, worldview God being above all and the center of all. So he also went on to uh, present a contrast between wisdom and folly. Uh, We've looked at that on a number of occasions. Uh, We've seen that the preacher pulls no punches, amen, as far as his lessons in life go, um, that there is no guarantee that, that uh, all will be fine and great all the time. Uh, there's no guarantee that life will be void of trouble, sorrow, or pain. Uh, there's no guarantee that we'll end up on top. Uh, and if we do, there's no guarantee that we'll stay there. So uh, instead, uh, from, from kickoff, uh, from the commencement of this, this whole Study. we're reminded that life isn't always fair and life may very well punch you in the mouth. We've seen that. So uh, also there, there aren't always answers to, to the very puzzling questions of life. Um, some things um, seem um, very annoying that can be even frustrating when, when we don't know uh, the reasons why. Uh, we've looked at that. And, of course, within the whole storyline of the Bible, um, we understand and realize that it's all a result of living in a fallen world, that uh, we're awaiting a new heaven and a new earth. Now that Christ has come, we've seen the curse reversed. It's being reversed. He's reversing all things. And he will, by way of his finished work, give us a, a new heaven and a new earth. So we understand this. 
uh, by, by faith. It's Jesus Christ who is the very wisdom of God. Um, this we're studying uh, is wisdom literature, and uh, wisdom literature is fully expressed um, in and through um, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have much more hope than even Koalath had as Christ has come. So uh, nevertheless, um, he gives us a great sense of hope um, as we've studied uh, throughout. As you know, some folks uh, oftentimes misread this book only to see it as, as an expression of pessimism. You know, the expressions of a, of a classic cynic. And when I started this study, I told you of a neighbor of mine who came up to me on my front porch and uh, he's a believer as far as I know, and he said, I'm reading through Ecclesiastes, and it's incredibly depressing. And I told him, I said, that's because you're not reading it correctly. So I went on to explain um, how you are to interpret it. So uh, the, the preacher we've come to see is a realist. He's not a pessimist. He's a realist. Um, any pessimism in the book centers on an under-the-sun perspective. So having been through it all, he, he's come to terms with life, from an under-heaven, God-centered perspective. And as we've moved along, uh, we focused on what he's really up to, that is, the preacher, the author, um, and we find him to be rather calm. He's not paranoid. He's not gripped by anxiety, but he's rather easygoing. And as we read through it, you almost see somewhat of a wry grin on his face. Right, an ironic grin concluding, essentially, you know what? We can trust God in all matters of life, and we can rejoice in the midst of it all. I mean, this is the journey he's brought us on. So when interpreted correctly, uh, it can only give a believer confidence here and now in midst of this fleeting life. It is fleeting. It moves fast. So we, we've, been in, we've been taught to, to enjoy the day, right? Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Today has enough troubles of its own. We see that right here in Ecclesiastes. Now, one theme that we've seen um, constantly surface is this, that there is nothing better for a person than to eat and drink and make himself see good in his labor. This I saw was from the hand of God. Now, we've seen that phrase, we've heard that phrase repeated, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, and chapter 9. So he says, enjoy your food and drink, enjoy your spouse, enjoy your work, that is your toil, whatever your work is, enjoy it, along with the simple pleasures of life. So stop fretting over what can't be changed. We've seen that. Have a good meal, have a good time. In the good days, because not all days are good, right? For there is a time for everything under heaven. But also, he goes on to say, consider, you know, as you're enjoying life, consider also that everything will be brought into judgment in the end. So you might want to temper your enjoyment, he says, with with that in mind. So chapter 11, verse 9, be joyful, not cynical. Remove vexation, he says, from your heart, and let your heart cheer you. You know, J.I. Packer 
um, in discussing the fact that as a younger Christian, he himself was very cynical. He goes on to describe being too proud and cynical to, to enjoy God's gifts of life. And he said this, quote, Being too proud to enjoy the enjoyable is a very ugly shortcoming and one that calls for immediate correction. Let it be acknowledged that as I had to, to learn long ago, discovering how under God that ordinary things can bring joy is the cure for cynicism. End quote. So we, we've been hearing the preacher challenge his readers that this is not a book of despair, but we're called to rejoice in the gifts that God has so graciously dispensed. So based on the doctrine he, he's laid out in the preceding chapters, he, he began his conclusion back in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, saying this, In view of these truths, here now is how we ought to live. First thing, live a life of faith. Remember, a life of bold venture. Cast your grain out on many ships. Live a joyful life. Rejoice in God's goodness. For life is, chapter 11, verse 7, very sweet. So that began his, con- his conclusion to, to this uh, pursuit. And then chapter 12, verse 1, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And remember doesn't mean reminisce but to to conform your life to the will of God. That is, call to mind these truths so that it affects how you live. Remember your Creator. He says, remember your Creator before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure. Evil days uh, isn't referring to to moral evil, but is referring to the evil afflictions of life. In other words, the days of trouble. Because as you grow older... You, you will face various diseases and weaknesses of the body, uh, the decline of the intellect, i.e. old age. So he says, be wise now, remember God now, life is moving fast, and in those advanced phases of life, uh, come not dreams, not bold venture, but deterioration of the house. Remember, the house is broken down. The windows become dim, that's the sight. The doors are shut, the ears, we begin to go deaf, and so on. He says, remember him before you know it, life is like a vapor and you'll be gone. So he, he finishes that section with the reality of mortality. Uh, and there, we, we looked at that character, that character sketch um, of old age last week, in verses 3 to 7. Were you all encouraged by that? Now, according to that sketch, because I was thinking about this, he says, remember God in your youth. Okay, now we might ask, okay, what if I remember him in my youth, but as I grow older, that I can't remember him in my old age? Okay, what about that? Well, the good news is, just in case that passed through your mind, the security of our salvation doesn't depend on our remembrance of him, but of his remembrance of us, right? Uh, Philip Ryken actually tells a story of his own grandfather when his grandfather was in his 90s, had trouble remembering who he was, and it was very frustrating. So his daughter, which is Ryken's mother, said this one day when he was very frustrated. He says, I can't remember who I am. She says, that's okay, Dad. I know who you are. 
and I can take care of everything you need. Amen? Now, there's even more security for every believer as regards the remembrance of God. Jesus said this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the curse afflicted on Adam and Eve still inflicts us, that is, to the dust we shall return, but only temporarily. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in verse 7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, All is vanity. He ends the book just as he started it with that phrase. So what is meant by this conclusion? Because after all, he just proved that life is not vanity. Amen? He just just spent 12, it's not vanity. So he has shown that the activities motivated purely from, from a humanistic perspective are indeed striving after the wind and it is vanity. Okay, that's the end, the conclusion of the whole matter. But here, he, he contrasts that, I believe, with a rhetorical question, which is the only plausible answer, right? So as to emphasize his point, look, I've proven the fact, right? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Is it all vanity? It's not. So, there's his conclusion that... Fulfillment of life rests in, as we see here, the fear of the Lord. We've seen that theme throughout also. Fear God, fear the Lord, fear God throughout. So here, at the end of the matter, the preacher's been saying from the beginning, if there is no God, then there is no meaning of life. There's no meaning if there's no God. If there's no God to judge all things, then then life is pointless. Nothing matters. But reality is there is a God who judges all things. Therefore, all things matter. Everything matters. I mean, this is the heart of what it is to be a believer, amen? Everything matters. This we know by the grace of God. So number one, it matters because as we go into this next section, his words are faithful and true, number one. Everything matters because his words are faithful and true. And secondly, because his day of judgment is coming. His day of judgment is coming. So here we are in verses 9 through 14. um, The epilogue of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This is the closing section. This is the end note. This is the postscript. The afterword. Now, many believe this to be written by an editor. This last section. Uh, It was common in the ancient uh, Near East to take the work of a writer and and provide an endorsement, kind of like the the dust jackets of our books. You know, you flip open the little dust cover in the back, and there's a blurb on the author, right? It it tells you uh, the work he's done, the other books he's written, uh, the degrees he's earned, and so on. And that's basically what this is believed by many to be. 
And that's because the preacher being referred to here is being referred to in the third person. That's why some believe. Now, we have seen over and over, I, the preacher, I, the preacher, the one who assembles everyone, the preacher, the assembler, that's what Kohelet means. He represents the assembly. So whether it's an editor or whether it's the preacher himself, um, either way, it's not significant because this part, these last few verses, are, are, are a part of the record of the inspired, infallible Word of God. So you can believe what you will. It doesn't matter. Amen? Now notice we see in it, we see a description of the preacher's wisdom. We see a description of wisdom literature. And then we see his final conclusion. So those are the three things we'll look at in the next 20 minutes or so. Notice, um, his word is faithful and true. So having heard what the preacher said, we hear now, we now hear how he said it. Notice, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. That is to say, he, he wrote with logical clarity. Now, the traditional understanding of the authorship is that of King Solomon. Right? We, we read in the very first verses, you know, Preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, who wrote over 3,000 proverbs in his, in his life. Look at 1 Kings 4.29. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the sea, seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Imagine that. Imagine that. So he was wise. And and this speaks of, of gifts and calling. This guy was called by God, gifted by God. This all came from God. He is the wisdom teacher is what he's saying. He's the wisdom teacher. In the Old Testament, Moses, he was the lawgiver. The prophets came, and and they called God's people back to the law. And then you had also a wise man who taught Israel how to apply the law to to everyday life. So here he is, uh, the author of wisdom literature. Uh, This is a a God-given role. He's not a prophet like Jeremiah, but he's one who... uh, teaches, you know, skill for living. This is how you live. So that's verse 9. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. True words, wise words that are also beautiful words. Great effort has been taken. And it brings, you know, pleasure to the reader. It's, It's artistry here that we see, of words. Beauty is also a gift of God. Amen? Now, as Christians, we're, we're pragmatists. But we're not only pragmatists. Amen? We're, we're to enjoy art, creativity, artistry. We, we see it um, in, in novels. We see it in music. We see it here in poetry. So the first, the first point and purpose is always 
concrete reality, concrete truth, instruction in truth. But here it's carried along with beauty. And that's how he wrote. This is, this is how he did it. He sought, fi- he sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. So he, he, dil- he, dil- he diligently sat back and weighed how he was going to say what he said. This is how he did it. In the most acceptable and pleasing manner. The fundamental purpose we see is to instruct. It's for the matter of changing lives, amen? So we see the beauty of it. His words are faithful and true. He wrote beautifully, and then in verse 11, notice, the words of the wise are like goads. A goad. A pointed stick to to, to goad a, a stubborn animal mule or an ox. It's used to keep, you know, a stubborn beast moving, to inflict just enough pain to get him back on course. A goad. You stray, you poke him. It's kind of like a like a cattle prod today. And sometimes they were they would put goads on the front of an ox cart, so if the ox began to jostle and kick, he would kick and cause himself pain. You remember Paul, when he was recounting um, his conversion in Acts 26, he said, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. (laughs) So Solomon wrote to goad us in order to cause us to think about our Creator, to to cause us to think about our finite position under an infinite Creator. He's goaded His readers throughout. That's what Scripture does, amen? Sometimes it goads. It could could goad us as as regarding um, envy in our hearts. Jealousy, bitterness, unforgiveness. And you, you, know, you come to the Word and it goads our heart as regards to those things. Poking and prodding us um, towards repentance. Which is very loving of God, amen? He goads those He loves. And He wants to spur us on towards contentment and, and joyfulness, humility, you know, goodwill. A forgiving heart, things of that nature. Because we, just like uh, cattle or, or sheep, are prone to stray, wander. So he goads us because he loves us. So that's what the word does, leading us back to, to the path of repentance, of, of confession. And we need it as we, as we go along. So the preacher goads us to remember our Creator uh, when we forget about Him, uh, when we're tired of the battle, when we want to stop plowing in the role, in the row rather, uh, that we've been assigned, and we're goaded back in to re-engage, to re-engage. So here we have words of godly wisdom prodding us, goading us, that is, sometimes painfully, otherwise known as, Conviction. 
conviction. We have the Spirit. So here, the Word of God sometimes convicts. Pictured here as a goad. And also, notice, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. Now, this is great here. He says, here you have secured, fixed words. And if anything's going to move, it's not going to be the word. It's going to be you. The word is fixed. It's settled. So when you drive a nail into something, it's so that whatever it is you nail stays in its place. It remains. So also you nail something to, to, so as to fasten something. Here we have truth. You can hang your life, he says, on these words, basically. Everything that you are, you, you, you can hang on this truth. It will bear the load of your life. It's an anchor of wisdom. It's, it's truth. It's just fastened to the mind and to the heart of the recipient. Solid, solidly fixed, given, he says, by the shepherd. The Hebrew people... Um, referred to God as their shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So here, the immediate context in which the preacher sums everything up, um, and, and that is he's calling us to fear God, keep his commandments, verse 13, which lends weight to identifying the shepherd, not with the author, but with the creator. In other words, this is divinely inspired wisdom literature. The man with the pen, and this goes for all of Scripture, the man who had the pen wasn't passive, but was actively involved in writing out the very Word of God. We see his personality, whoever he was, um, within the inspired Word. But he writes, whoever he was, he he wrote without omission or without addition. Word by word, he wrote God's word. The miracle of divine inspiration. So he, God, is your shepherd. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And you notice it's capitalized. So, one shepherd. Divinely inspired word of God. Verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now these, where he says anything beyond these, meaning anything in addition, anything additionally, anything beyond the words of the divine shepherd, there's all kinds of books out there, basically, is what he's saying. In this day, what are they? Now, it's like a million a year, something like that. But there were a lot of books at this time. So he's saying, look, there's all kinds of writing out. There's all kinds of writings. There are all kinds of books that you may be tempted to be admonished by. All kinds of philosophy. Man is constantly writing. Man is constantly penning down his thoughts, most of which are absolutely worthless. 
Some are good. There's some great books. They have their place. Right? You want to learn how to fix your lawnmower? They have books for that. You name it. There's a book for everything. But none can compare to, to holy writ. Amen? To holy scripture. Nothing compares. So all other books, all other kinds of thinking, philosophies, counsels, all of them ultimately are and will be judged by scripture. So all men will stand accountable for, for what they write. Now, this is not against writing books, amen? It's not against writing books. This isn't to be against reading books. But it, it's, it's about the standard of which you're being instructed. What is the standard of the instruction that, that you're taking in? The things that admonish you. That's the thought. So there's only one book for the true standard of life, and it's God's word, amen? And you know, just because someone reads a lot of books doesn't really make them wise. I know people who read, who they can outread me by two. You know, you read three books, and they read seven in two or three weeks. But if you talk to them, that doesn't mean they're wise. So you don't have to be intimidated just because... They have a large library. It's about wisdom, not knowledge. Not mere knowledge. Because only one book has the authority of God. It's the scripture. It's the living scripture. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, notice, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the word teaches us, it goads us, it matures us, it instructs us all about life and all about the here and the hereafter. That's where we find it. You know, this is why we teach at all levels at this church. All the children right now, they're being taught the Word of God. We preach the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, and so on. That's why we do that. This is God's Word. We don't need a word beyond Scripture. Someone have a word today, brothers and sisters? Don't need it. Nothing beyond Scripture. So people do that, they need to really close their mouth. Got a word. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the word. Amen? Jesus is the word. Time is limited on this earth, so he must be the locus of focus. Amen? His word, he is the word. Notice Colossians 2 3. Christ in whom all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Christ that we find all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So it's not scripture plus tradition. Yay. It's not scripture plus tradition. It's not scripture plus experience. It's not scripture plus a word from you in the third row. All other books, 
will be forgotten. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God's word comes from the great shepherd. So now, because of the day of his coming judgment, right? fear God, which has been a central theme of Ecclesiastes. He's wrapping up in this, this little epilogue to fear God. Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he's saying, look, everything I've said, lay it to heart. Hear it. To hear is to heed. If you're going to really hear, you must heed. So to hear is to heed. Secure this truth. Nail it down. Hang your life on it. He says, come to a decision. Here's the sum of the whole matter. Here's the summation. The sum of the message. Fear God, which is to stand humbly before Him. Humble yourself before God. And obedience is a sign of humility. Rebellion, rebellion against God is an indication of pride. It's it's to raise your fist and shake your fist in the face of God. The opposite of humility. No one fears God. A lot of people say they believe in God, but no one fears God apart from Jesus Christ. So to believe that there's more ways to God, the Father, than Jesus Christ alone, you don't fear God. Right? You don't fear God. This is what Jesus said in John 5. Do I have this up there? Okay, good. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You know, in Romans 2.16, what do we read there? On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You talk about an open book. The secrets of man. So, you, you, you can't add to the word. You can't take away from it. God who ordains all things, governs all things, and will judge all things, including the secrets of men's hearts in Christ Jesus. So, the hearer, he says, must come to terms with this reality. To fear God is to believe God. To fear God is is to trust 
God as he's revealed himself. Not, not a God of our own imagination, amen? Because a God of our own imagination is a God you try to control. It's this God, the one true God. The one who came and paid the penalty for our sins, including our secret sins. Therefore, since he's come, our Lord Jesus Christ has come, God's judgment is no longer motivation for obedience. Right? If we're saved, God's judgment is no longer motivation for our obedience. His grace is. His, his mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus is our motivation. His judgment is no longer a threat for Christians. Right? Because Jesus bore the judgment. So your secret sins, it's not you're going to be that you're going to stand there on judgment day and be humiliated because he bore your humiliation. He was humiliated in our place. So motivation for obedience is no longer judgment, but mercy and grace. He saved us from judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will sustain you to the end. Okay, get this key word, guiltless. Did you get that word? He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. He bore your guilt and shame. Now, living life merely from an under-the-sun perspective will be exposed, shamed, and judged. Those who see above the sun, who live life from an under-the-heaven perspective, theocentric worldview in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, have been rescued, saved, and will be exalted, not judged. In Christ, who is the Word. Amen? So this is how this must encourage us. And here then is the end of the matter. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Amen? Amen.